So these words are Jesus speaking to the crowds. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Thanks, Flick. Uh, I get my haircut in Gertrude Street and Diana, the hairdresser, is fascinated with the fact that I'm an Anglican minister and every time I get my haircut, she's always asking me, what do you actually do during the week? I mean, she, she thinks it's just Sunday, but what do you do during the week? And that's the question I, I know a lot of you are thinking. Um, but um, I'm not going to go into it all now. But one of the things that I do do is I get involved in the wider life of the church. And not, not just the Anglican Church, other denominations as well, but the Anglican Church. And um, this, this includes um, being part of um, a committee uh, called the Prevention of Preventing Violence Against Women Task Force, which is led by um, Robin Boozy, who's in our congregation. Where are you, Robin? I'll, I'll be actually talking to Robin a bit later. Um, and um, Robin was um, employed all the way over from, from um, London, brought across to Australia, in part for this job, in part for other reasons, because um, um, she's an expert in this field. And, and um, so I wanted to be part of this task force to help her. But also um, one of the reasons was because a few years before um, Robin approached me, um, that I'd experienced in my family... Uh, violence against one of my family members, a woman in my family, extended family. And um, I'd not known how to respond. I felt quite helpless and frustrated with um, the way the system works, with how you can report and you can't report and there's not a lot you can do and unless, unless um, you have the cooperation of the, the people concerned. And, and I just remember feeling hel- helpless and not knowing how to respond. And then also there was a series of articles that came out on the ABC, which some of you might remember on the ABC website by the journalist Julia Baird. And in, in her articles, what, what she was showing was that uh, violence against women is an issue in the church as well, and that some of the, um, the, the teaching and the practices of some churches, not all churches, when it's, especially when it's mishandled and, uh, and manipulated, can create conditions which promote violence against women or increase the chances of that and that obviously that shouldn't happen. Um, and so it, it had become, it has become quite an issue um, in, my, in my head to, you know, to, be, to be wanting to get involved and do something about it. Um, you, you might think that you don't know anyone who has experienced um, any kind of violence, any woman that has experienced violence. You might think you don't know anyone but you do. Um, 
the, the statistics for this are quite horrendous. Um, one in three Australian women has experienced some kind of violence since the age of 15 and one in five has experienced sexual violence. Even yesterday in the news, we've had another case of a woman being tragically killed uh, in Royal Park on her own, another one, so that's four in, in 12 months within a few kilometres of this building. I thought it would be good right now, actually, just to have a moment of silence and a prayer for what happened yesterday. Lord God, we, we pray in response to, de to the death of that woman who we don't know her name in, in Royal Park yesterday. We pray for her friends and family as they mourn together. And for, we pray for all women in, in Melbourne that they can feel and be safe in public spaces. We pray that the perpetrator can be found and held accountable and that as a society we can seek change and not accept any kind of violence against women. Amen. So if, if you're a woman here today and you've experienced violence, I want you to know that I believe you and I acknowledge you and I'm here for you. I believe you. I want you to know that God hates violence. This is going to be a theme of my sermon, actually. He hates... He's angry at violence against women. And he loves you. And that if you need to speak to someone in our church, you can speak to me or Beck or one of the staff and we'll point you in the right direction and, and try and help you find safety. Our church is actually blessed to have not, not just Robin, but, but um, three experts in this field. So Kirsten as well. Um, is, works in this field and um, she works with migrant women who've exp and who's experienced uh, domestic violence and violence against them and, and, and also Tanya and um, also if you, we could include Nick Andreeski who used to work in this field with uh, a men's referral organisation. So sometimes when you have a, a few people in your church that have these, this expertise it makes, it makes me think oh maybe God has brought these people together for a reason maybe, who knows. Well, if you're a visitor today, um, you might be thinking, why is, the, why is the minister talking about all of this? This is quite um, serious and, and, and dark. And, um, well, it's partly because, as, as Beck already mentioned, we're finishing a series, sermon series on the book of Judges. And, um, you know, uh, we finish looking at a, a story which includes and it highlights this issue of violence against women. Um, and it raises it in a very stark and real way, explicit way. But also, in a kind of a way, it acknowledges the great work of people um, like Kirsten and, and Alison and, and, and Tanya and Robin. Um, and it's just a way to kind of say, you know, this, this is important for our church. If you don't know much about the book of Judges, it's a book in the Old Testament uh, set in the period just after the time of Moses, a couple of hundred years later, and the Israelites have finally come to their promised land where they're to settle, and they're living amongst a people group, the Philistines, who were a, a real terrible tribe of people. They were horrible. They practised um, child sacrifice, and they were very violent and um, debased. And um, um, when um, 
the Israelites lived amongst them, they started learning their culture, the Philistines' culture, and started imitating them and behaving like them. And eventually, the Israelites became as morally corrupt as the Philistines. And so the book of Judges follows this kind of gradual um, merging of cultures, um, and you see the Israelites becoming worse and worse and worse. And at the end of the book of Judges, we get a snapshot into the life of a few people that, that, that then includes the whole of the Israelites, all the 12 tribes together. And this is the story we're looking at. Um, that just shows you how bad things got. They had the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and they did not follow it. They took no notice. And they were led by a series of um, judges, so we're to think of them like military leaders, not courtroom judges. Um, but they didn't have a monarchy. They didn't have a king or a queen. And so there's this repeated... For, Peter phrase in the book that at that time Israel had no king and so everyone did as they pleased. You know what it's like when the teacher leaves the classroom for 15 minutes, the kids gradually get noisier and noisier and then start losing control and mucking around and then there's stuff being thrown across the room. Well imagine that on a national scale for several hundred years um, in a tribal culture several thousand years BC. They're in a moral mess. They've sunk to the bottom of the sewer. In fact, our passage says at, at one point in our passage that I'll be reading in a second that such a thing that we're about to read about has never been seen or done, not since the time of Moses. It's not since the time the Israelites came out of Egypt. It's a shocking story. This is a rape and revenge story. And we're going to look at this as a way to talk about preventing violence against women. I want us to see that the Bible engages with this theme. The Bible knows um, what the world is really like and it shows you what God's heart is as well. And that the Bible shows us um, a vision of a new kingdom as well. We'll get to that. A new kingdom where there should be no more um, inequality between genders, no more violence against women and this should affect how we the church live now so the bit i'm about to read focuses in on an israelite man and his concubine he's called the levite um, this man and his concubine who are traveling from bethlehem back to the man's home country of ephraim we don't know their names she's a concubine which probably means um, the man just bought her for himself uh, she's got a lower status than a wife. Uh, he's referred to her as her husband, but she's referred as his concubine, his possession. So already we smell trouble. What's going on with this group of people? But this was a common practice at the time. And we're in, we enter the scene as, as the, 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 the man and his um, concubine, and there's another younger man there who's, who's only mentioned once. Um, they're walking, uh, and then they stop for the night, and they um, enter into um, an old man's house in the town of Gibeah. So let me, let me read you this passage. Judges 19, you might want to have a look in the booklet, verses 16 onwards. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, 
We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, where I live. I've been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. Now, what we're about to read is the horrible bit. The first horrible bit. There's a few. But here, here we go. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now listen to this horrible response. Verse 23. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do, what, do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man... Don't do such an outrageous thing. So this is a patriarchal society, uh, and it's the most horrible example of that, where women are objects and used and discarded. Verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door, and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to, to, to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Uh, just pause for a second. Now, at this point, we don't actually know if she's alive or dead. Um, she's probably alive. Either way, the Levite is about to do something equally as outrageous and gruesome as what we've just read. He's in a rage. He's probably, um, you, know, uh, you know, going crazy in his head. So let's just keep going, verse 29. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. This outrageous act, uh, which combines a rape and the dismembering of the woman, caused such a wave in Israel that it actually brought people all together from all the tribes of Israel. This had never been done before, this uniting of all the tribes, and this is what it took. This is an ancient tribal culture. You might be shocked at hearing this sort of thing, the, the dismembering of the body, but if you've done any anthropology on ancient tribal cultures, which I have, you'll know that there were practices done in, in, in ancient times which are shocking and horrible like this, often involving um, murderous acts. And I'm not justifying, I'm just saying this is a common thing. I've read this before, this kind of thing before in other cultures. Anyway, let me finish the reading. 
chapter 20, verse 1. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mitzpah. The leaders of all the peoples of, of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzpah. Then the Israelites said, Tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. And the story ends by those representatives from all Israel deciding to go down to Gibeah and to um, find the men who did this and to kill them and in a kind of an act of a mob justice. This is what they, they do. Um, this story is almost identical to um, another story in, in the book of Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah, another kind of context, another city uh, described in the Bible as, 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 as having you know, sexual violence everywhere. And the way God responds in that story is um, to, that he destroys the city with a kind of a volcanic eruption. It, it says that it literally God rained down burning sulfur on the city like he's stoning them to death because his rage is so angry, anger. There's so much anger. Think of, and if you think that's strange, like I, I just think, think of the rage and, and the anger of the Me Too movement. Think of that and times that by infinity. It's the divine Lord responding to a sexual abuse. Remember that, that march that went around the world um, just after Donald Trump was elect, elected? Millions of women all around the world, collective rage. We see that in that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah story. Um, in, the, in the story that we've got here from Judges, a similar story, what we see is Israel crumbling. Um, they were the Wild West. They're, they're crumbling into self-destruction. And the problem here is the violence is leading to more violence. The anger is intensifying. And when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, as this book, Judges, says over and over again, it creates a society in which both men and women lose their humanity. But it seems that women suffer the most. So what the book of Judges does is it points forward and it longs, it cries out, um, a scream from the heart. That's why we've got the image of the scream. I was thinking of that existential soul cry that you get from that, um, that, that painting. And in this case, I think it's a lithograph, um, one of the sketches that led to the painting. But that sort of, that, that, um, that cry of like, why does the world have to be this way? And the book of Judges points to it forward and says, Israel really, really needed a king. They needed a righteous judge ruler. The story, chapters 19 and 20, doesn't even mention a judge. And that's how, where they'd got to. No leader. They needed someone to give them a new vision for a new society. They needed someone to take a stand for equality for women. They needed a healer who can change people's hearts and they needed a saviour who can lift up um, you know, victims and survivors of abuse. Um, carrying lifelong shame and give them a new identity. You see, when Jesus comes and God sends his son Jesus to the world, his mission, one of his missions is to end the, end the mess, 
He comes with everything that had gone before. He looks at it, everything that God had set up, and he, he corrects the mistakes of God's people. And he says, look, he points back to God and he says, look at what God's been saying all this time. And he establishes his kingdom on earth. And so the reading that we had before um, I got up from Flick when she read, um, that was from the Sermon on the Mount. And there's some, Jesus is giving his policy, policy speech and here he's already introducing this new vision for this new kingdom, the kingdom that the book of Judges longs for. Uh, where he says things like he preaches equality for women. Remember, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, he's saying to men, it's not enough, just enough for you not to commit physical adultery, but the way you think about women actually reveals how you demean them if you are lusting after them in your heart and objectifying them. He wants you to treat women with respect. That's what Jesus is saying to the people listening. The lusts of your heart reveal an attitude that demeans women, he says. It's better for you, he's speaking with hyperbole here, it's better for you to pluck out your eye than to think this way. When women are attacked and killed, like what happened in Royal Park yesterday, it happens in a context where, where men see women as objects, for their personal use and disposal. The motivators of, of these kind of men, it, it's, it's not that different to what we read about in the book of Judges. It's exactly the same, in fact. So if you feel angry about this sort of thing, frustrated, then you're thinking like Jesus. This is what Jesus wants too. But also, when he says this about how, you know, what, you, what you imagine about women to men, he, he's also raising the standards of sexual ethics. Now, often Christians are viewed as wowsers. Christians are viewed as wowsers with regards to sexual ethics. But since the Me Too movement, there's been a longing for the demands of sexual ethics to raise, hasn't there? We've seen new standards for consent in sex. So Me, Me Too has tried to raise, raise the standard, but Jesus raises it even higher. Jesus is the judge that Israel needed, Jesus is the king that we need. And also from, from the Sermon on the Mount, where, which Flick read, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. The whole justification for the mob, just, mob justice that we see in the judges' story, when they all get together, the, the 12 tribes' representatives, and kill them, that's based on uh, a principle, a universal law that's introduced in the, in the start of the Bible um, just after the story of Noah, uh, which, which is a standard for pr pretty much every culture now in the whole world, which is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So if you, you kill someone, you're going to be killed too. But Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm going to... Don't answer violence with violence. Leave earthly justice up to the government and the courts, and eternal cosmic justice up to God. One of my close friends, Tim Hine, who preached at my wedding, and he's now actually living in Adelaide, so we communicate mostly on text messages on a weekly basis. Um, he, um, he, was, he is now the, principal, the, the vice principal of the Uniting Church Bible College. 
Um, and he just wrote a fantastic book published uh, with InterVarsity Press uh, last year, was, came out, called Understanding Sexual Abuse, A Guide for Ministry Leaders and Survivors. And Tim himself is a survivor, and um, he's spent a lifelong, he's had a lifelong journey, gradually in the gentle walk of, of life, um, with Jesus, experiencing healing and, and, and transformation. And Tim writes in his book about God's anger and justice towards abuse. Because um, he, he says that often we can get this wrong. We can think that God doesn't get angry and that we shouldn't get angry because aren't we supposed to be peace-loving Christians? But he says, no, that's wrong. Listen to what Tim says. We become angry when our boundaries are broken. It is the same with God. God is not losing his temper. Rather, God's anger is the, the willed, visceral response against everything that violates his good creation. This includes acts of sexual abuse. God is angry about sexual abuse. God's concern for the welfare of children is sufficiently captured in the words of Jesus, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Tim continues... Some people find the idea of God's anger difficult to comprehend. It seems to clash with our image of a God of love, but God's wrath is a dimension of God's love. When something we love is spoiled, our love is displayed by our anger at what has happened. Because God loves his creation, he is angry when evil or unrighteousness or injustice spoils that creation. Tim says... I find it hard to conceive of a God who loves me but is not angry about what, is, what was done to me. That's a God I would find little comfort in and would certainly find hard to worship. God gets angry because God is love. So it is understandable that we should be angry too. Anger at your own abuse or anger at the abuse of others that you love. But revenge is not necessarily helpful in fact, there is good research to show that um, the uh, survivors of abuse will f often fantasise about revenge, but actually it can cause them to be re-traumatised and perpetuate feelings of guilt and self-loathing. The non-violence that people like Martin Luther King taught was one that assumed a God who, had, who, who exercised divine vengeance a wrathful God that was exercised wrath out of his love for people. So mob justice isn't the answer. Rest in the fierce power of God's perfect justice. And the last thing I want to say about Jesus is that, and this is probably the most important thing, is that Jesus' death and resurrection is hope for survivors of abuse. When Jesus came to earth, and went to the cross, he stepped into the muck, into the sewer with us. He experienced a kind of sexual violence himself. We often forget this, but on his road to the cross, what do the Roman soldiers do? They strip him naked and they humiliate him in front of the crowd. A form of sexual violence. And then he's executed. Abuse is dehumanising. It says you are not worth anything by the abuser. You are mine for, your own sick, for their own sick pleasure. But Jesus' death on the cross does the opposite. Jesus' death gives you a new, truer humanity. It says you are worth everything to God. You are worth the life of the Son of God who is willing to die for you. 
Jesus became dehumanized so that he could restore our humanity. And Jesus' resurrection on Easter Day, it also gives hope for survivors. It gives hope to us all because it points forward to an eternity that we can share with God in a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more abuse, there'll be no more incidences like yesterday in Royal Park. If you want that for yourself, you just need to ask God, you need to pray and ask him and say, I believe in Jesus and what he's done. I, I want to be part of his new kingdom. And you can take on that new identity as a child of God. To finish my talk, I want to address the issue of what do we do as the church in response to Jesus' new vision of the world. See, the opposite of love is not anger, but it's apathy. So if we do nothing, we're actually not being loving as the church. The church needs to get our house in order. We need to work at educating our communities, being a safe place for women. And we need to be a prophetic voice in the community. We need to reset, we need to heal and operate as the community of love and justice. And there's a lot I could talk about here, but instead of me talking, I thought I'd bring Robin up, so let's give her a big clap. And um, I thought, Robin, it'd be great if you could share a bit about um, our, um, our, our task force and some of the things. You've got a pilot program you're introducing and some of the exciting things that are going there. Tell us about that. Sure, thank you. Um, so, yes, echoing what Peter's been sharing this morning, um, the program is really about, based on the idea that as Christians, we're, we know that everyone is created equally, that we're all equally precious and loved, and we should all have the opportunity to thrive. But as we know from reality, that doesn't always happen. And even in our churches, women aren't always treated as equals and that violence often denies us the opportunity to be able to thrive as God wanted us to. Um, and responding to that and um, supporting women who have experienced violence um, is really important. But as a church, we've got a role even beyond that um, to look at the injustice and why is this even happening on such a large scale? Um, what, what is causing this to be more likely and how can we be part of the solution? How can we shift this culture? Um, so that's what the program that the, the Anglican Church in Melbourne is doing, is trying to look at how can we shift this culture. So um, we're trying to support church leaders like Peter and churches like ours to think about how we can be shifting the attitudes and behaviours and structures that make violence more likely. And it's often things that we don't even realise that are just so ingrained in us in how we do life that sometimes we just need to um, learn how to ask questions and check ourselves and realise, oh, yeah, <laughs> that was a victim-blaming thought or that wasn't helpful um, in that situation. So um, that's what it's about. And so we're going to be training church leaders and churches, um, helping churches to get their policies in order, giving resources so that we can do Bible studies and think about this more deeply. Um, so that's kind of the big picture, and it's really exciting that this is happening. Um, it hasn't been done on this scale before, so we're really pleased to be, uh, I guess, pioneering this. Um, and part of one of the really exciting things that are part of that is that we have been funded by the Department of Premier and Cabinet to pilot a project in churches about preventing violence against women. 
Um, and there's been a number of projects done in this area, but not a lot of data on what works. So we're working with the University of Melbourne, um, and we're going to work closely with five churches to really help them to um, do a bit of a 360 on their church and look at every part of the church and how to get things in order. And they can be real examples for others to learn from. So it's just um, very exciting to be part of that. And even externally, like the government and others recognizing that the church has a really key role to play. The whole violence against women sector recognizes that faith organizations, churches, we have a key role to play. So that's really exciting. But the question is, are we going to step up and, and play that part? Cool. So, I mean, just to, just to put this in context, we're the first diocese in Australia to really lead the way here. Is that right? So uh, Sydney are a little bit ahead in terms of response. They've got a policy in place about how to support people already experiencing violence. But uh, the Diocese of Melbourne is the first one to invest in a full-time role like mine. So we're going to leapfrog them. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> not that it's healthy competition. But they're, they're, they're not looking at prevention. So in that way, we really are leading the way, looking at prevention and what, how do we not just deal with the problem in front of us, but how do we go back further? And if we don't do prevention, then we're never going to see a reduction in rates. So we have to have that long-term vision and that bold and courageous um, approach when we have our task force meetings they're usually quite i've been i go to a lot as i say a lot of diocese meetings and most diocese meetings it's like this <laughs> but with robin's meetings everyone's really engaged and excited and and, and you know what, getting involved because we can really see real tangible change that can occur um and so do you have any prayer points because i want to pray for you and for this whole um uh pilot program we're looking at whether our church can be one of the, the five early adopters. I think it sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? But anyway, any prayer points for us? Um, so we've just recently started to advertise the training days for church leaders. And um, church leaders don't just work on a Sunday. They're actually really, really busy. And it's a very difficult to get their their time they have so many competing priorities so it'd be really great to pray that lots of church leaders prioritize this and say it's really important for me to go to that training and for my church to really prioritize this so I guess just to pray for them to bump that up their agenda and really be committed and um, I suppose to pray for God to be speaking to all of us about how we just in the little things in the everyday can be part of the solution. I'm going to pray for Robin and uh, ask you to pray with me. Let's, Lord God, thank you so much for Robin and for who you've made her to be and, and the gifts you've given her um, and the passion you've given her um, um, to be able to um, come up with this new pilot program and also in institute new policies and strategies for our diocese. And we pray that um, this all... Um, uh, starts to bear fruit soon and that um, uh, the clergy and the, and the lay people um, can get on board and sign up to be trained and that we can have those five churches pilot the new program. And we just pray that um, our, our diocese and our church in Melbourne but across all of Australia um, can be um, transformed in this new era of uh, an awareness, a self-awareness about the language we, we use, the behaviours that we've got so that our churches can live as you want us to live, as you've been calling us to um, um, ever since Jesus came and ushered in his kingdom. Amen.